Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We know you are here, you're omnipresent, but help us to sense your presence and And we pray, Lord, to have open and receptive hearts to your word and to the work you desire to do in us and through us. So I pray that you would bless uh, the message, Lord. Um, I pray that you would uh, bless your people. I pray that when we leave this place, we'll be more like Jesus than when we came in. And whatever anyone is going through, maybe they had a rough day. Lord, I just pray that you would give them peace, give them strength give them comfort, that you would lift the burden, lift any oppression if anybody's oppressed uh, by anything, Father, in the name of Jesus. We also pray, Lord, for uh, the gift of teaching, that you help me to rightly divide your word of truth. And so fill me afresh, I pray, with your Holy Spirit, and may I decrease and you increase all for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. So in this series, we've covered Uh, So far, the deity of Christ. So we've shown that Jesus is God and the scriptures do show that in both Old and New Testaments. Um, And yes, uh, Jesus did claim to be God, um, despite what some people say, just that some people uh, didn't catch on to it and don't catch on to it today. Uh, We've we've also talked about the humanity of Christ. And in the uh, in, in the third part, we talked about the character of Christ, and then we talked about the works of Christ, and then in our last study, we talked about the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Today, we're going to focus on the prophecies about Jesus, and Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, he fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry, and so we're not going to go through all 300 or 300 or however many uh, prophecies there are. We're not going to go through every single thing, but we're going to cover quite a few. And we're not going to uh, look up every single references re- reference, but I'm going to have uh, the references um, on the screen. You could, you know, write it down take a picture of it, whatever you want to do with it uh, or whatever is easier for you to take notes and try to remember it and maybe go back and review it. Um, but, Uh, We will point out some of these. We will spend a little more time on some of the prophecies. And so there's going to be some Old Testament scriptures um, that that show the the prophecy, of course, before it was fulfilled. And then um, you're also going to see the reference in the New Testament of how Jesus fulfilled it in his earthly ministry. And so once again, some of them are going to be, you know, they're they're pretty much going to be all um, in, in parentheses. And I'll ask you to turn to a few of them, but not too many because we have a lot to cover. So with that being said, we're going to start with the prophecies about Jesus's birth, prophecies about Jesus's birth. And so, first of all, we see in the scriptures in the Old Testament um, that that he was it was prophesied that he will be born of a virgin. And you can see this as early as the first book of the Bible in Genesis, chapter three, uh, verse 15 and then you have the famous scripture in Isaiah 7:14 and then you can look at the New Testament of course and you can see that he was born of a virgin his mother of course her name is Mary 
And another prophecy about Jesus' birth is that he will be born in Bethlehem, the same place King David was born, David, King David's hometown, in other words. And so Jesus being in the lineage, lineage of David, which we'll see later, was born in that same place. And Bethlehem, by the way, and I mentioned this in the earlier study, Bethlehem means house of bread. And Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. And you can see how God works all of that out. You know, he just worked it out. And so that's what took place. Uh, we see that he fulfilled that in his earthly ministry. And then uh, other, another group of prophecies we want to look at are the prophecies about the deity of the Messiah. And so we had a whole study showing that Jesus is God. Proving that he has a divine nature. He's fully or truly God. He's fully man. Truly man as well. But we focused in the past study about the deity of Jesus. In fact, that was the first study to, to make sure we had that established. Word was in the beginning. The word was with God from the beginning. Face to face with God the Father. And there was nothing created that was not created by him. The scriptures tell us he's God. He's the son of God. We talked about um, the phrase son of God doesn't mean a biological sonship, just like my sons and, and my, my daughter. I have one daughter, just like they're my biological children. This wasn't a biological sonship. This is about uh, relationship and and. And pretty much his, his, his rank or um, duty, so to speak, his position, positional sonship. And so to say that he's the son of God saying once again that he has the same nature as God the Father, same essence, one God who uh, is co-eternal and three, co-eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it's just always been that way. And so Jesus, of course, is the son of God, always existed. And he was also called Emmanuel. And we see that when he was born as a human, we see that his, the name that was given to him is Jesus. And so Emmanuel describes who he is, whereas his name Jesus describes his mission. You know, Yahweh is salvation. Uh, that's what Jesus means. The Lord is salvation. He came to save. Uh, Emmanuel says who he is, shows us who he is. He is God with us, God in the flesh. But we also see that he existed prior to the incarnation and that he is also called Lord. And so you see the Old Testament and the New Testament verses there on the screen in parentheses. And so I'm not going to ask you to turn to any of them at this point. We, we've you know, we've covered the deity of the Messiah, of the Christ. And so we're going to move on to the next set of prophecies. And so these are the prophecies, or at least some of them, about the humanity of Jesus. So, for example, to show that Jesus will be fully or truly human, it, the scriptures tell us that he's going to be the seed of Abraham. And, of course, that came to pass. Jesus fulfilled that. He's also a descendant, according to his human nature, a descendant of Isaac and a descendant of Jacob. And so one interesting thing that you'll see, um, you know, in, in 
You know, when you look in Matthew and, and Luke and you see the genealogy, one thing you'll see, you'll see a few differences. And that's because uh, Matthew is based on um, Joseph, his stepfather's, his adopted father's, if you will, genealogy, whereas Luke is, is based on Mary's lineage or her genealogy. So that's where you're going to see some differences, especially when you come to um, the David's son that he came through. For example, I believe it's in Matthew, you'll see uh, that that is David and Solomon and so forth that um, in Joseph's lineage or his genealogy, you're going to see that David and Solomon. Uh, but in Luke and Mary's genealogy, um, you're going to see that he came through the lineage of Nathan. And so you're going to see Nathan and, and then David and so forth. And so um, and, and there's no contradiction there. And I'll just explain that one is based on Joseph, the stepfather, and one is based on uh, Mary's lineage. And so either way, Jesus had a right to be king because Joseph, um, his stepfather, you know, he, of course, was a descendant of King David. And so by adoption, he was able, Jesus was qualified to be king. But also, according to his humanity, through his mother bloodline, He's also qualified to be king. So either way. And then the fact that he is God himself, he's really qualified to be king, king of kings, Lord of lords. But just speaking of his humanity, he's also from the tribe of Judah. There's 12 tribes. Um, yeah, from the tribe of Judah. There's 12 tribes of Israel and Israel um, was Jacob. But Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So, you know, there's 12 tribes. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, also from the family line of Jesse and from the family line of David. So you can see once again, those Old Testament and New Testament verses uh, for all of those points. But then there's some prophecies about Jesus's roles, prophecies about his roles. And so first of all, the scriptures tell us that he would be a prophet. For example, uh, Deuteronomy 18, 18, and you can turn there if you like, and I'll read it. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, now this is Moses sharing with the Israelites what the Lord spoke to him. And so it says, I will raise up for them a prophet with the capital P like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So Moses is telling the Israelites what God told him, that God told him, Yahweh told him that I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren, from among the Israelites. My words will be in his mouth and he's going to speak to them all that I command him. And we see that in the New Testament. If you want to turn to John chapter 12, Verses 49 and 50, you see Jesus saying the following. He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me gave me a command. So again, you see that positional sonship. So he willingly took a submissive role, but it didn't make him any less God than the father. And so. The father who sent him gave him a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. 
Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the father has told me, so I speak. And so you see him fulfilling that role of a prophet, just like it was described in Deuteronomy 18, 18, where, where it says that I'll put my words in his mouth. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying, that whatever the father wants me to speak, that's what I'm speaking. And so you'll never see Jesus and the father at odds. They're always going the same direction. And then you also see Jesus in the role of a priest. Psalm 110, verse 4. I'll read that. You can turn there or write it down if you like. But it says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. He will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Not according to the order of Levi and then through the lineage of Aaron, because that, that's how you would be able to be a priest. If you were from that tribe of Levi, but also a descendant of Aaron, Jesus was not that. He was from the tribe of Judah, but yet and still he is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, a higher order of priesthood. Because in, in Abraham, so before Levi was even born, you, you can say that Jacob or Israel and, and all the tribes of Israel, inc- including Levi, the priestly tribe, they were all inside of Abraham in seed form. And so Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. And so that, that's an example um, that, that shows the fact that Melchizedek has a higher order of priesthood. And so that's the order Jesus would be of, but he would be a priest forever. He's not going to die like these other human priests. And so there is no other priest that we need except for Jesus. He's a high priest forever. In fact, and looking at the New Testament fulfillment of that, we look at Hebrews chapter five, verses five and six. It says, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, it was the father who said to him, speaking of Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And it says, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so here you see the Bible explaining itself. You see here Hebrews chapter 5 showing us that Psalm 110 verse 4 is an application to Jesus. Jesus fulfills that prophecy about his role as priest. And so already we see a couple of roles all rolled up into this one person in Christ Jesus, the Messiah or Christ. And then, of course, the scriptures tell us that he would also be king. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, for example, says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. In other words, he's saying that you're, there, there's going to be a descendant that comes from David, a branch of righteousness, a king with the capital K. If you're looking at that verse, it says a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And then you look in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, verse 33, for example, there you'll see the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. 
And he's just letting her know that, hey, this is God's plan. This is what's going on. I know you were a virgin, but you're, you're going to become pregnant with the Christ, with the son of God, with the eternal son of God in human form. And so Gabriel speaking to her in Luke 1:33, and he says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob again. Another name for Jacob is Israel forever and of his kingdom there will be no end of his kingdom. There will be no end. So, so again, you see that Jesus is prophet, priest, king, all wrapped up in the one. That is the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the one who was chosen. He is the one who was appointed to fulfill these roles and to become our savior. But then there's another set of prophecies we want to go through that other set of prophecies talk about the treatment of Jesus. You see there, there's some prophecies in the old Testament, Psalm 118 verse 22, for example, that talks about Jesus being rejected by his own people. It, it talks about him being this stone of stumbling. And so in Psalm 118 verse 22, it says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so he would be rejected. But then, of course, it will be found out. It'll be revealed that, hey, he's important after all. And you turn to first Peter chapter two, verses six through eight to look at a New Testament reference. It says, therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, the main stone. And also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. To which they also were appointed. And so the cornerstone, by the way, is this is the principal stone around which construction in in past times in antiquity was achieved. And so the cornerstone, in other words, was the was the main point, the focal point of the building. And we're talking about a literal cornerstone, the focal point on the building. And so the, it is the thing on which it most depends for structural integrity. And so the cornerstone made sure that the structure, that the building was was built correctly, that that everything was straight. That everything was good with the building and Jesus for us in a spiritual sense. He is that cornerstone. But you saw that he was that stone of stumbling because the Jews, they were disobedient to the word. And there's other people who were disobedient, but they, they rejected him. And of course, there's people who reject him today. So to, so to some people today, he's still that stone of stumbling. He is an offense to them. They're offended with them. How can he say that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come to the Father but through him? How, how, how can you Christians be so narrow? How can this Jesus whom you worship be so narrow? So they stumble 
over him. He is an offense to them. But he's become the chief cornerstone. You see, Jesus, the scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to read it on your own time, he, he's that chief cornerstone who joins the walls of the Jews and the Gentiles. So you have these two groups of people, the Jews, you have the Gentiles. And when Jews and Gentiles repent and they place their faith in Jesus, they, they are joined together in one family called the church, called the body of Christ. And Jesus is that cornerstone that joins them together. And that spiritual family is built up based upon that cornerstone, that the most important stone in this spiritual building called the church. You see, without Jesus, there is no church. Without Jesus, the chief or the main cornerstone, the most important stone in the building structure, this spiritual building structure, without him, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without him, there is no relationship with the Father. Without the most important cornerstone, the chief stone, spiritually, there is no way we can get to heaven. Without this chief cornerstone taking that cup of wrath from God upon himself, there's no way out for us. We're, we're, we're doomed because we cannot earn salvation for ourselves. And, and Jesus even prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. And you've seen him being pressed. You, you've seen him being pressured. You've seen him going through agony and he would go to his father and pray. But then he just just fell on the, the fact that, hey, Father, if this is your will, then your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. If salvation can't be accomplished except I drink this cup of wrath, this cup of death and suffering, then, then I'll take it. And you read the story. You see that Jesus did indeed go to that cross which implies that there is no other way to salvation but through Jesus. And some people may say, but, but that isn't fair. There should be multiple ways to heaven. We should be able to do what we want or believe in whatever God we want in order to, to get to heaven. Some people may say that. But in reality, God really made it easy. This is the way. And, and that way is Jesus and so to some people, Jesus is that stone of stumbling. To some people, Jesus is someone to be rejected. To some people, they are put off by Christ. They just don't want anything to do with them. It's gonna, if it's going to cause me to change the way I think and to change the things that I do, and, and I'm having fun right now in life, and if I got to stop doing those things that, that, that pleases my flesh, then... then it, you, know, you can keep your Jesus. That's how some people think. But according to the scriptures here in 1 Peter 2, to you who believe he is precious. Is he precious to you tonight? Now, I know he's precious to many of you because you're here to learn more about him. And you spend quiet time reading and praying, just getting to know him Better and I and I just pray that as we've been going through these studies, that 
that you're loving him more and more, that you are appreciating him more and more. Another thing you see in the scriptures when it comes to prophecies about the treatment of Jesus is that he was hated without a cause. Psalm 69, 4, and you can see it also in the New Testament, John 15, 25. And the scriptures also contain a prophecy, probably more than one reference in the Old Testament about Jesus being anointed. It should be anointed, not anointing, with the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 11, 2, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And you see that in the New Testament at his baptism. And so there you had all three persons of the one God there in the same place. You had Jesus, fully God, fully man. You saw him being baptized in water by his cousin, John the Baptist. And then you hear the father speaking from heaven. This is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. And then you see the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove landing upon him. And so he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Just like the scriptures tell us, for example, in Isaiah chapter 11, he operated in the power of the spirit. But then there's more prophecies, of course, about Jesus. And in this case, these are prophecies about his ministry. Even in the Old Testament, it talks about his ministry in Galilee. It talks about him being a teacher of parables. Talks about him preaching to the poor. Talks about him being a light to the Gentiles. That, that yes, because the Jews, because they had the word of God, the prophecies, they were to expect the Christ, the Messiah. Yes, they had first dibs and Jesus went to them first, but his goal wasn't that narrow. The plan for salvation wasn't that narrow because it says that he will be a light to the Gentiles as well. And I'm a Gentile because I'm not a Jew. For God so loved the world, John three sixteen. He's also a miracle worker. You see this throughout the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can. See all of these miracles and each of those four gospels focus on a different aspect of Jesus. But they all show him as this miracle worker. But then as you continue on and continue through the scriptures, you, you'll see that there's prophecies about Passion Week, the, the week that he would suffer and, and die. And we're getting close to that, by the way. As Resurrection Sunday is, is drawing near. And so you see the scriptures about Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. About the Messiah entering Jerusalem on a donkey. For example, in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. He's lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's prophesied in Zechariah that, that Jesus would 
pretty much with his arrival, riding on a donkey, that with his arrival be making this public proclamation that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, that he is indeed the king. And so that's what that announcement was about. And so it was prophesied, Zechariah 9, 9. That's just one place. But then you turn to Luke chapter 19. You see a fulfillment of this as we look at verses 35 through 38. It says, then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the coat and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So you see that fulfillment there. And Jesus, by the way, he arrived on the exact day that it was prophesied by Daniel, the prophet in the Old Testament. Jesus came to Jerusalem and he even spoke to the Jews concerning this prophecy that was found in Daniel. As we continue in Luke 19, you'll see what Jesus says to Jerusalem in verses 41 through 44. He says now or it says now as he drew near. He saw the city, he saw Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and they'll level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation and that actually happened in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple so there's no temple right there on that temple mount currently there's a there's a mosque where Muslims worship but but that temple that existed in Jesus's time was destroyed in AD 70 and Jesus prophesied about it and it gives you the reason because They didn't know the time of their visitation. They didn't didn't recognize their day. As it says in Luke 19, 42, they didn't recognize their day. In other words, they didn't recognize their Messiah when he showed up on the exact day that it was prophesied. Pastor Durrell, what are you talking about? Well, Well, as Daniel was praying in Daniel chapter 9... If you want to look at Daniel 9, Gabriel came to explain the vision that Daniel had seen in the previous chapter in Daniel chapter 8. And so in Daniel chapter 9, 24, Gabriel, the angel, is speaking to Daniel. And he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your people, Israel, for the Jews and for your holy city, Jerusalem. 70 weeks to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And so that verse there, speaking of the 70 weeks, this 70-week prophecy 
that was given to Daniel that he wrote down. These seven weeks are 77 year periods, 77 year periods, which equal 490 years. And so these 490 years that are prophesied in Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, our reference verse here, they're specifically set aside for the people, for the Jews and for the city of Jerusalem, which is the holy city that is being referenced in Daniel nine twenty four. And so we see six reasons here just in Daniel chapter 9, 24. We see six reasons for these 490 years, for these uh, 77s, these 77-year periods, so to speak. And so the first purpose of these 490 years is to finish or to fully restrain or to bring to a completion the transgression of the Jews when they rejected their Messiah. So 490 years for them to finish that transgression. And so he will bring that sin to an end at the end of the great tribulation period, which is still future. And at the end of the great tribulation, they are going to cry out for Jesus. Are they going to, they're going to want him to rescue them. They're going to receive him as their Messiah at the end of the great tribulation. Again, that's still yet future. And so that's one purpose to bring an end to that transgression of rejecting their Messiah. Cause they're finally going to say, Hey, we, we, we messed up the first time. The first time you came, we, we need your help. Now we, we welcome you. You are the Messiah. We do accept you as King. So it's going to bring an end of that. That's one purpose to those 70 weeks, that 70 week prophecy, those 490 years. But the second purpose is to make an end of or to seal up. That is to shut in prison the sins. And these are the sins of everyday life or the sin nature. And so the sins will be dealt with. At the end of the tribulation period, it's going to bring an end to that. So that's another purpose of this uh, 490 year period. But a third person, as it tells us in Daniel 9, 24, is to make reconciliation for iniquity. And that refers to God's atonement through Jesus being applied to the Jews nationally. And so after the church is gone, God, he's going to turn his attention back again to Israel. He's going to finish what he started with them because God completes his promises He doesn't stop in the middle and thank God for that, that God always completes what he started. But right now, this is the church age. He's working through the church and the church is made up. If any Jew is made up of any Gentile, of any language, anybody who repents, put their faith in Christ. We are one body. We are the church. And this is the church age right now. Church age doesn't end until the rapture. But it started on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter two. So we're in the church age right now, but once the church is removed, then the program's going to go back to Israel and he's going to focus on completing that program with them. So he'll again begin to deal with them and so to to make that reconciliation for iniquity, but a fourth purpose of that uh, 70-week prophecy is to bring in everlasting Righteousness, and this is talking about the millennial kingdom. 
So the thousand year reign of Christ, the fifth purpose, that 70 week prophecy is to seal up vision and prophecy, which means that all visions and all prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And that's, of course, going to happen when Jesus come back, the second coming. But but then the sixth purpose, according to Daniel 9, 24 of those 490 years that was given in the form of prophecy to Daniel. Is to anoint the most holy. And that could refer to the holy of holies. Um, speaking of the speaking of the temple that's going to be there during the millennial kingdom. So if you read Ezekiel, you read towards the end and you're reading about this huge temple and you're probably figuring out what is this big temple? Why are we going through all these measurements and stuff? That's the temple that's going to be in place during the millennial kingdom. And so to anoint the most holy could be a reference to that temple that's going to be there during the millennial kingdom, or it could refer to Jesus who is the most holy one. That as he comes back, that he's going to be anointed as king. Because that word anoint means to consecrate or set apart for service. But then we move on to Daniel 9, 25. We want to get to the bottom of this. Of what, what did Jesus mean that they, that they didn't recognize their day, that they, that they missed it? What is their day? And so Daniel 9, 25 says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And so obviously the seven weeks, 62 weeks, add them together. You have uh, 69 weeks. And so, but here you see them split. So why are they split? Why is it seven weeks and 62 weeks. Well, let's start with the seven weeks that that will equal 49 years, right? Seven, seven year periods. So that that 49 years, that first set of seven weeks refers, um, it, it refers to the Jews rebuilding Jerusalem. So 49 years, a 49 year process, but it will be rebuilt in troublesome times, as it tells us in Daniel 9, 25. Because remember, Daniel right now is in Babylon. Remember, the Jews were taken there because of their disobedience to the Lord. So he's getting these prophecies. And, and so when you add the other 62 weeks to that first seven weeks, once again, you have 69 weeks, which equals 400 83 years. So in other words, from that command to go forth and restore and rebuild Jerusalem from that command that's given, there's going to be 483 years until the Messiah shows up on a donkey in Jerusalem, publicly showing that he's the Messiah and King. And so the command to build the wall that actually went out on March 5th, 444 B.C., by Artaxerxes the first Longimanus or Longimanus. And you can see that in Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through eight. So that command went out to go rebuild. So that's when that clock started, that 483 years started. That's when it kicked in. Or you could say 173, 880 days. It all started up. And so if you count 173,880 days or 483 years, which is those 69, you know, seven year periods, you're going to come to, as some Bible scholars say, you're going to come to March 30th, 
AD 33, when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem riding on that donkey. And so Jesus, he wept over the city, said you had the prophecies about my exact day that I would show up uh, revealing myself to be the Messiah and King, but you missed your day. You didn't know it. You, you did not know the time of your visitation. I'm here to help you. I'm here to be the king that you've always wanted and, and you missed it. This is what we call the triumphal entry. And that triumphal entry, of course, took place on what we call Palm Sunday. And, and so you see this in the scriptures. So you see this prophecy in the scriptures about this triumphal entry. But then you see be betrayed by friends, sold for 30 pieces of silver and so on. Even down to the uh, nitty gritty that that money will be thrown down in God's house. And and of course, that's talking about um, Judas throwing down that money. He'd be forsaken by his disciples. That's shown in the Old Testament. That was fulfilled. Accused by false witnesses, silent before accusers. He'd be smitten and spit on. That was prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 50, verse 6, says this. He says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to to those who plucked out the beard. So beard was plucked out. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So the scriptures even gets down to those details in the Old Testament that he'll be smitten, he'll be spit on. And Matthew 26, 67, for example, says, then they spat in his face, they beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands. The scriptures are accurate. Then there's prophecies about Jesus' death that he fulfilled during his time on this earth, and his, during his earthly ministry. It talks about him being mocked and Talks about him being wounded and bruised and how his hands and feet were pierced. Now, what's interesting about that is that the prophecies in Psalm, 9, in Psalm 22 and the prophecies in Isaiah 53 that pictured the type of death the Messiah would die. What's interesting about that is that this, this mode of punishment, so to speak, of him having his uh, wrist pierced and his feet pierced. That wasn't even invented yet until hundreds of years after this account was written. And so you see the accuracy of his word. You see that he was numbered with the transgressors. He died amongst thieves, uh, even though he himself was in the criminal. He even prayed for his persecutors. He even talked about his friends standing afar off and how people shook their heads. And that shaking of the head was a, was a gesture that showed that there's no hope for the sufferer. He was stared upon. The, the, scriptures, the scriptures even, you know, talk about um, things like there's this darkness that covers the land. And you see that happen as Jesus hung on that cross. And then from, from about noon to uh, about three o'clock, there was darkness So you see all that in the scriptures, prophesied, fulfilled during Christ's time on the earth, his garments being parted and lots cast for his garments. You know, another indication that Jesus was crucified naked. 
Then that talks about the gall and the vinegar that was offered to him. But he rejected that because he wasn't going to take anything that would deaden the pain or put him in another state of mind. He would take the suffering on our behalf head on. Scriptures talk about Jesus suffering thirst and him being forsaken. So he gave that forsaken cry as he didn't feel, you know, that, you know, the father with him. Feel like the father turned his back on him while he was on that cross as he became our sin bearer, taking the responsibility for our sins. No bones were broken. His side pierced, heartbroken, as shown by that blood and water that came forth from his pierced side. And all of that was prophesied. Then, of course, scriptures even talk about him, the Old Testament, committing his spirit to God. And you see that in Luke 23. He's also buried in a rich man's tomb because Joseph of Arimathea, he took Jesus' body and he laid it in the new tomb. You even see prophecies. And we talked about in our last study about Jesus' resurrection. So there's some more scriptures there. It's prophesied. But when you see all these prophecies, and these aren't even all the prophecies. You know, people have done studies and research that that shows the probability of Bible prophecies uh, about the Christ being fulfilled in one man. And so according to, to one man, Peter Stoner, this is what he found, just about eight prophecies that he chose. You can take a picture of that. He says, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. That will be one in whatever that number is, 17 zeros after the one. And he says, in order to help us comprehend the staggering probability, Stoner illustrates it by supposing that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote them according to their own wisdom. A slim chance that just eight prophecies would be fulfilled in one man and Jesus is that right man. And then the same guy Stoner, he considered 48 prophecies. (laughs) task is even harder he says we find the chance that any one man fulfilled all 48 prophecies that he considered to be one in 10 to the 157th power so you saw what it you saw the chances of it just with eight prophecies you saw the chances of all these prophecies being fulfilled in one man jesus christ with just 48 prophecies but remember what i said jesus fulfilled at least 300 jesus is the messiah he's the christ he's the son of god and and guess what the scriptures tell us that jesus knew that he was fulfilling prophecies He even told the Jews that you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. You think because you have the scriptures. You think because you have the law. 
that you're good with God, that you, you think you have life because you're tedious about the law. You think you have life, but he says, they are they which testify of me. When you read the Old Testament, you see pictures of Jesus throughout, and we haven't even, even talked about the types of Christ that are in the Old Testament. We've been focusing mostly on these direct prophecies. And so the criticism of some people will be like, well, if Jesus knew he was fulfilling prophecies, then he made himself fulfill them. But if you think about it, that doesn't make sense because then you will have to ask the question, did Jesus pick where he would be born? He, so he picked as, a, as an infant that he would be born in, in, in Bethlehem. He picked that he would be in the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesse, and David. I can't forget Judah. And then he would have had to make people abuse them the way they did. And then many people acknowledge that Jesus is good, but would a good person put all these events together to trick people into thinking he was the Messiah? That's for people who will say, oh, he made himself fulfill them. But here's the thing about prophecies. So we've been looking at past prophecies mostly. If, if, If these many prophecies about Christ have already been fulfilled, then we could be assured that he's going to fulfill the remaining prophecies. We could be sure that he's going to come for his church in the rapture. We could be sure about that, that that he's going to come one day and it could happen at any moment. Nothing needs to take place. He can come at any moment and snatch us out of here. We meet him in the air. And so ever be with the Lord. Those are words of comfort. The scriptures tell us in 1 Thessalonians 4. But then also, he's going to fulfill the prophecy that he's going to come back. And he's going to step foot on this earth. And he's going to reign for a thousand years. And we're going to rule and reign with him. So if he fulfilled those, then rest assured he's going to fulfill these future prophecies. In other words, he has a good track record. So expect him to come back. But the question that I have for for you, saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, what, what are we doing until he returns? What are we doing until he returns? You see, this is what it says in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him, this hope in him, this hope that, that he's going to be revealed, that, that we're going to see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him, in Jesus, purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. So in other words, for the Christian who lives in expectation that Jesus can come back at any moment should cause us to live Christ-like lives. If you truly believe and you truly have that hope, and hope is not, when I say hope, I'm talking about biblical hope. I'm not talking about hope like maybe, like the world thinks of hope. No, when the biblical hope, when when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about joyful expectation of coming good. So it is an expectation of what's coming. 
And so if you have that joyful expectation that, yes, he is coming back for his church, just like he said, then we should be walking in holiness and we should be living Christ-like lives. But is that what we're doing? And so we all have to challenge ourselves in that. But, but not only that, we should also be involved in the work of the ministry and laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven where, the, where Jesus says neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Are you laying up treasures in heaven? Are you being faithful to what God has called you to do? It says for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's the good thing about it. That one day, although we don't see those treasures right now that we're storing up in heaven, as we walk in obedience, as we are faithful in doing the work that God has called us to, one day we will experience those treasures in eternity. But a reward in and of itself, and this is a great reward, because the scriptures do teach that we will be rewarded for faithful service on this side of heaven, storing up treasures, right? But a reward in and of itself is to hear our Lord, It's to hear our Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that what you want to hear one day? Is that what you want to hear one day? So as we wait for him to come back, walk in holiness, walk in purity, but also be faithful to what he called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that the Bible is, is so accurate. Thank you for Jesus that he's going to come back one day for us. Help us to be prepared. Help us to be faithful. Equip us for whatever it is you have us to do. And Father, if there's anyone You'll have us to witness to, Lord. I pray that you would set up the appointment, empower us to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.